trouble is some of you might not be Christians and no, you don't feel guilty at all. You just, if you hear the word evangelism or if someone was to say they were an evangelist, that's not the kind of person you want to invite around to a party. Uh, evangelist, it just carries a, a very negative connotation. But for those of us who are Christians as well, sometimes it does as well. I, I was sent a YouTube video this week, which was highly amusing, a parody of evangelism. Um, I'd love to show it to you, but basically it just summarized the kind of guilt that Christians often feel about evangelism. We feel guilty. We know it's something that we should be doing, but it seems somehow disconnected from the real world. But I think part of the problem there is our understanding of what evangelism is. And let me put it another way. Uh, If you're a Christian, I want you to think what it feels like to be evangelized. Um, Have you ever had these two earnest young men knock on your door with the black suits and the American accents? It's so tempting just to have fun with them, or it's tempting to be really annoyed or whatever, but being evangelized, it, it, it... Just think how that feels to somebody. I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding about evangelism. I think if we understand it at all, we tend to do so in terms that are 50, 100, 200 years almost out of date. I think we take what we term evangelistic practices and we think, well, this is how it's supposed to be and there's only a very, very few people who can actually do this. I also want to suggest this to you. Uh, For me, uh, studying this this week was just great because I love evangelism, uh, but I share all these feelings of guilt and frustration that many of us do. I think sometimes there is genuinely a danger in plunging in with what we will call direct evangelism. In other words, let's say you were really challenged by the sermon this morning and you're a Christian and you went out into the street or you walked into your local shop, or you went into the pub and said, I've come to tell you about Jesus. Or you went home, which is much more challenging, and sat down with friends or in your your flat or whatever with your family and said, listen, I want to tell you about Jesus. It's very, very difficult to do. And therefore, we, we, we struggle in lots of ways. When I was looking at this, particularly in this passage, it struck me that... What's been spoken of here is what we would call, what we're going to call, responsive evangelism. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. That is, responding to people's questions, people's needs, and so on. Now, what's not going to happen this morning is you're not going to get um, a talk on better techniques in terms of evangelism. This is going to be about opportunities. Opportunities, he says here, how to answer everyone at the end of verse 6. We have to be able to answer the questions that are put by other people. We have to accept the openings that come to us rather than making the openings. Now, I would argue this does not limit Christian witness because questions are everywhere and Christians should be everywhere. I think if we have the approach I'm going to suggest, it will mean we have a greater dependence on God's leading. It will mean a more relative and sensitive witness. It means the outsider, as is described here, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. It means the the outsider chooses the time, the place, and the subject. It means that the Christian gets to speak of Jesus 
Christ in a meaningful context and not just get, get rid of our guilt by um, handing someone a tract or, or speaking a word to people. If you want a kind of example, look at, uh, go to, back to Acts chapter 8 and the story there of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And in, uh, after reading the eunuch, after reading from Isaiah, says this in verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Peter began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news of Jesus Christ. Here is a classic example of responsive evangelism. A man says, uh, look, I've read, I've read this bit in the Bible, what does it mean? And beginning with that very passage of scripture, he was able to speak about Jesus Christ. So I want to look at three basic principles in, in what I'm calling responsive evangelism or responsive communication of the great news of Jesus Christ. And the three that are, there are, three that are taught here. Number one, be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. That, that's speaking of tact. It's speaking of thinking. It's speaking of considering people. We are to walk in wisdom. If you go through Colossians, wisdom is a big, big theme. Chapter 1, for example, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and, ask you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ, whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 2, verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. That, that's where Paul is attacking the legalistic, ritualistic religion. And in chapter 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So wisdom, Paul prays that they would get wisdom. Wisdom is to be found in Christ. All the wisdom is in Christ. We are to have that wisdom in, in terms of our relationships with one another. We are to have that wisdom in terms of our approach to God. And here we are to have that wisdom in terms of how we communicate the gospel to those who are not yet Christians. Now, the important thing here is this is not saying you have to be mega intelligent or clever in order to communicate the gospel. Some of the most unwise people in the world are mega intelligent. Not, the Bible does not despise intelligence. But you do not link automatically wisdom and intelligence. What's been spoken of here is something that is essentially practical and realistic. It begins in biblical terms with a deep respect for God. Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise person has a teachable spirit, which then leads to a spiritual and moral maturity. If we ourselves are not teachable, we will never be able to teach or to communicate the gospel. And that's why you see when you get an arrogant Christian, somebody who's got all the answers, somebody who's just out to tell people what they know, that's not wise. That's not communicating Jesus Christ. That's not what the scriptures are telling us to do. Wisdom is God's truth brought to life on earth. And really what we've been told here is be wise in your actions. And that's why, to be honest, 
If you were to go out from this service and start accosting people on the street, I don't think that would be wise. There may be exceptional, of course there are exceptional circumstances, but you never make the exception the rule. It's not always wise. You may say, well, I'm just being faithful. It's not always wise to go and buttonhole people. It may not be wise for you tomorrow to go into your work and plonk a Bible on each of your workmates' tables or desks. That may not be wise. It may not be wise for you tomorrow to stand up in your lecture and announce that the lecturer is a heretic and going to hell and that you have the truth. That may not be wise. It may actually be true, but it may not be wise to do that. You see, in the context of Colossians, the non-Christians were often speaking against Christians. And this is a great, I love this. I think this is just so amusing. You know what their complaint about Christians was? That we were atheists. They were saying the Colossians were atheists. They were saying that Paul was an atheist. Why? Because the Christians did not have an idol which they bowed down to. The Christians did not have a temple. And in Greek culture and in Roman culture, that was atheism. If you don't have a temple, if you don't have an idol, then you must be an atheist. The Christians were called unpatriotic because they would not burn incense to Caesar as God. They were called immoral. Why? Because they met behind closed doors. Oh, what's going on there? I heard they've become Christians. You know what they do? There is a classic cartoon. Cartoons are not a new invention. There's a classic cartoon in the catacombs in Rome. And it's a, a, there, well, there, there are two particularly famous ones. One is of a donkey on a cross, and underneath it says Tacitus, or whatever the Roman name is, worships his God. But there's another one in which Christians are portrayed as eating children at communion. You know, we have communion this evening. And lots of people around, I guess, don't know what communion is. But in, in, uh, and they may have all different kinds of idea, but it's, it's almost like um, people would perceive some kind of Satanist ritual. Well, that's what it was taught then, and they were accused of being immoral. And Paul, rather than going against all this, he says, look, don't give people the opportunity to slander you. Do not cause anyone to stumble, 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, that they may be saved. He writes to the Romans, Don't let the name of God be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. So what we're being told here in terms of communicating the gospel, in terms of being wise, is that we need to remember, as F.F. Bruce Bruce puts it in in this way, he says, it remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. Let me say that again. The reputation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city in your workplace, in your university, in your home, is bound up with your behavior if you profess to be a Christian. See, the Bible's astonishingly realistic. This is not paper Christianity, but real situations. In Corinth, there was sexual immorality and spiritual excess. In Thessalonica, families were being broken up because of lust. There was also drunkenness. This in the church. In Ephesus, there was lying, anger, filthy talk, sexual immorality. That's why Paul says, put it away from you, because it was there. How do you commend the gospel if you live in the same stupid way as you did before? How do you commend the gospel if what people know you for is your bad temper and your greed and your rudeness and your hypocrisy and your lewdness and and so on? How do you commend the gospel? You don't. 
The answer is you do not. We are to be wise in how we communicate the gospel. We are to be tactful in how we communicate the gospel. And we have to, in the words of James, if we lack wisdom, we have to ask the Lord to give us wisdom. Now, I want you to feel guilty. I really do. I I want those of us who are Christians, and I'm including myself in this, to say, oh, Lord, what am I doing? How, How do people around me see Jesus Christ? How am I being wise? How am I being tactful? How am I ref- what reflection am I giving of you to the world around? And not just us individually, but us collectively as the church. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Secondly, we have to make the most of every opportunity. Here, it's not tact that's been spoken of, but zeal. Because you get some people say, oh yeah, I'm really tactful. But they do or say nothing. Because they're just being so tactful. They're tactful all the way. As people walk all the way into hell, they're being tactful. That's not what's being spoken of. You combine this tact, you combine it with zeal. The time actually is short. Go back to Ephesians, Paul's earlier letter, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15, where you get a similar instruction. Ephesians 5, 15, where he says this. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. We have to be alert to our opportunities. We have to make the most of every opportunity. The word for um, opportunity is a word for time. We kairos. And people speak of a kairos moment. 1 Corinthians 7.29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Or in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, what the word, the word that Paul's using is saying, here's an opportunity, and it's a word that means redeem, buy or get. And it really is a sale. It's a bargain. Here's a bargain. This is your opportunity. Get it now. Paul had a great opportunity at the heart of the Roman Empire. But the Colossians also had great, great opportunities. And that's why Paul is writing them saying, look, I've got a fantastic opportunity here, but so do you. And I think that applies to us. I'm so grateful to the Lord for the many opportunities that I've been getting recently. Really just absolutely stunned Um, even this week a phone call that I still thought was a bit of a joke but it wasn't Um, it was good old Kerrang radio back in touch except this time they've now become Kerrang TV and they said Dave you want to come and do a a television program with us Uh, I said like a heavy metal television station that wants me to come and do what you know sing and they said no they said no no we want you to just come and talk about God and discuss and said we'll have um, our DJ who's an atheist having a go at you but we just think it would make great television fine I don't know I mean they say come to Milton Keynes now that does sound strange in itself but if it happens I'll go if they phone up and say here's a ticket I'll go because it's an opportunity 
mean, before I did some stuff with them, and they told me that they were anticipating about 1.2 million people listening to it. Fantastic opportunity. We get opportunities. Now, the point is this. You can have kind of what I would consider those to be, in one sense, mega opportunities. But what Paul is saying is, I've got a mega opportunity here, right in the heart of the empire in Rome. But you've got opportunities everywhere you go. Everywhere you are, there are opportunities. Make the most of them. And what he's writing this letter for, and what the church seeks to do, is to help those of you who are Christians by teaching you Christ, by supporting and encouraging you, and by creating events, perhaps, such as Christianity Explored, to which you can, you can use as opportunities yourself. Now, there is a problem here. Because there's another attitude that you can have. And an attitude that many of us do have. Instead of seeing opportunities, you ask, what opportunity? All you see are problems and threats. Take Paul. He's in jail. His life is in danger. The church is under attack. He writes to the Colossians who are facing all kinds of problems. And what does he speak about? He speaks about the opportunities that he has. A great door has been opened for me. He speaks about the opportunities that they have. He speaks bluntly and clearly about the dangers that they face. But he doesn't say, let's curl up, let's protect ourselves, let's watch out for the devil and, and do nothing. He says, well, fantastic opportunities. Now, there are far too many of us. I, I would call it the Scots cringe, but I've come across the French cringe and the German cringe and even the American cringe, which is kind of reverse psychology of the Scots one. The Scots one is, I can't do it, I can't do it, we can't do it. The American is, we can do it, we can do it. And then both of them don't work uh, along those lines. But I, I think that we, we have this. We, we have this attitude which we see everything as a problem. You know, you... It's kind of like, to me, a cancer in the church, which is a real spirit of negativity about everything. Oh, you can't do that. We can't do that. Nothing will happen. Nothing will go on. Oh, we can't. We just, I'm so fed up of hearing that. Because I'll tell you what's happening. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. It's got nothing to do with spirituality. It's got nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It's got everything to do with your own insecurities and your own fears being projected upon to the whole community. And it's poison. And I say this, if you have a negative spirit, you need to repent and look to Christ. Because these are not days in which to be negative. These are not days in which to backbite. These are not days in which to moan. These are not days in which to constantly be looking to put down. Because you can succeed. I'll tell you this, it's so easy to put down. Now, I'm not saying don't tell the truth. I'm not saying we have to go along with everything that's ever been proposed. That's not what's being said at all. But it's just, it's so easy to revert into this, it won't happen, it can't happen, everything's miserable. You can pretty well guarantee that you're going to be accurate in that prophecy. It won't work, it can't work, it's all miserable. You can guarantee that you will be right in that, if that is the attitude. We need to repent in that respect. We need to see, as Paul sees, realistically, absolutely realistically, great opportunities. See, you may be well-meaning... Or think that you're well-meaning, because we are so good at justifying ourselves. But like Peter, when he told Christ that he wouldn't let him go to the cross, what you're really doing is the devil's work for him, because there is nothing more discouraging to a Christian than to have other Christians nip-nip-nipping away at things. It's not right, and we have to repent of it. 
And if you do that, by the way, as well, you miss the opportunities. You need to watch out for these opportunities. I, I personally can think of many missed opportunities in my own life. One actually stands out in particular. It's, it's, it's haunted me since it happened because it was so obvious. I was um, at a sportsman's dinner and I was there at the time. I was chaplain for Dundee FC. It's about three or four hundred men there and um, I was asked to say the grace. But not only that, afterwards I had an opportunity. I was sitting at a table and the rest all drew the short straw. They had to sit with the vicar and I had opportunity to speak to people. But I, I didn't take it. I'll tell you what I did. I made light of it. When people asked me, even when people asked me something, I made light of it. It was wrong. It was, an, it was a lost opportunity. Not to stand up and preach at people, but it was a lost opportunity to show Jesus Christ to people who knew nothing of him. And it still, um, still affects me when I think about that. Yesterday, when we had the, the sale here, I couldn't care two hoots about selling stuff. That, it was just great to have the church open and people coming in and so on. And what great opportunities there were with the people who did come in. I, I was in, so encouraged with this, for example. Chris went out and gave um, some leaflets on the streets to people. And there's a couple of guys who thought, oh, they're not guys who want to go up and have a cup of tea and a pancake in a church hall and, you know, buy some secondhand stuff. But he gave them the leaflet anyway, and they came up. And um, cut a long story short, I really enjoyed talking to them. And there's one guy in particular who uh, I didn't know. We didn't know who each other were, but we'd been emailing each other. And it was just great to connect and to talk and to share. It's tremendous opportunity. And when you open your eyes, you see opportunities everywhere. Walking down Perth Road the other day with... Um, and by the way, you get many more opportunities walking and going on a bus than you do in a car. But uh, walking down uh, Perth Road the other day, um, I'd attempted a Spanish evening class. It didn't last very long, about three. I got a few holas in, and that was about it. And, but there was uh, someone in the class, was a, a German lady there, just an absolutely lovely lady, and uh, bumped into her just going down the road. Hadn't seen her for ages. Ah, oh, Dave, what are you doing? What have you been doing? I said, oh, just really busy, as you know, you know, just the usual stuff. And then I thought, wait a minute. I said, actually... I've written a book, and it's in German. Would you like a copy? Yeah, of course. Just a, a small opportunity to talk to someone and, and to share with someone. Now, I think that we have many, many opportunities where we can be wise and where we can communicate Christ without being superficial, without being artificial, without it being just about our guilt and our conscience, but with a genuine concern for the people that we meet. It's a day of opportunity. Let me also say this. In a wider sense, we need to understand that we have to, as they say, if you're Latin, carpe deum, seize the day while we have the chance in our nation. Because we have freedom right now, and we may not always have it. You know, I admire Ramat and what he does in communicating the gospel, but he doesn't have as much freedom as we do. And we do precious little in comparison. I read a story this week of a girl in Lincoln, a seven-year-old girl. She died, and her parents wanted to put a cross on her headstone. This is what the local council said. No, crosses are discouraged as excessive use of the Christian symbol is undesirable. You know what they let her do? They let her put a Mickey Mouse headstone up instead. 
Excessive use of the Christian symbol is discouraged. I fully expect, unless God brings renewal and revival, I fully expect in my lifetime to at some point be, have to be prepared to go to jail for daring to communicate and speak the gospel and what the Bible says. We have great opportunities just now. We have great freedom just now. And we need to take those opportunities while we have them. In that sense, remember that this word, making the most of every opportunity, means buying up and redeeming. In other words, this is a genuine bargain, and it may not always be there. It's like MFI. You know, MFI are going bust. Well, you see these adverts for MFI. Closing down sale, last sale, last opportunity. Nobody believes it. Well, actually, now it is. I don't know. How how are they going to advertise this? Closing down MFI, literally. This is really going to happen. This time it's for real. This time, you know... Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that you, know, you get with advertisers. Well, sometimes you, know, you walk past a shop and you see something, you go, that can't be right. That was £300 and it's down to £10. That can't be right. Wait a minute, I'll think about it and come back. And you come back and you come back, it's gone. You've lost the opportunity. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you make the most of every opportunity because they're not always going to be there. And I want to challenge those of us who are Christians and to ask, what missed opportunities will you regret at the end of your life, on the day of judgment? See, I personally believe that here in St. Peter's, it is a kairos moment. It is a moment where there are great opportunities for communicating the gospel. And it won't always be like that. And you've got to take advantage of them. This is not speaking out of desperation. This is not saying, let's create the opportunities. This is saying that they are here. There are so many opportunities. Even as I sat down and thought, I'll list some of the ones that are there structurally, never mind individually. And you've got things like the Cayley next Saturday, the Christmas fair this coming Monday, um, the Christmas fellowship, the carol service. I think every Sunday, these are opportunities. Now, I accept that these are not speaking to people about Jesus, but they give you help when you get an opportunity, and they can be used when you get an opportunity. One of the saddest letters I ever received was from somebody who left the church and who said, do you know, I realize now that when I was in Dundee, I had great opportunities, and I never took them, and now I am so frustrated because I don't have the same opportunities where I am just now. And they were writing to apologize, saying, I'm sorry for all the moans I made. And I'm sorry, most of all, that I never took advantage of the opportunities that were there. Now, we're not saying this is perfection. We're not saying, you know, this is a totally unique and special time. But I'm saying this. The opportunities that you and I have right now, and I believe in the coming months, I'm... They're not guaranteed they're going to be there in six months' time. And actually, you're not guaranteed you're going to be around in six months' time, but they're not guaranteed that. Make the most of every opportunity. Third principle, speak graciously. We are to be gracious in our speech. As Paul writes to Timothy, those who oppose you, you must gently instruct. We are not to be abusive or vindictive. We are not to moan and complain and gossip. We are to be truthful and loving, to speak the truth in love. We are to live in grace, to grasp grace, to understand grace. 
What do you do when a couple of people come to see you who are militantly homosexual and ask your opinion on homosexuality? You, you back off. You condemn them and have a real go at them. You get all defensive. In order to be able to communicate Jesus Christ and teach the truth of Jesus Christ, you have to live in grace yourself and understand grace yourself and, and pray that God would give you the wisdom and the right words to say. And that's to people in almost every situation. Gracious in our speech doesn't mean backing down and wet. Gracious in our speech means reflecting the character and the love and the personality of Jesus Christ. And I can see no circumstances where being abusive or vindictive or verbally violent is in any sense reflecting the graciousness of Christ. And that's why Christians campaigning on street corners with banners denouncing other people, that doesn't fit. It does not fit with communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to speak graciously. Now, the trouble is that gracious words can be insipid and dull. So seasoning is added here. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? It means spice it up. It means that your words are to be interesting and lively and colorful. How many times do you hear a service on the, on the radio and people know they're meant to be gracious and nice, but they are so nice. They are insipid. It's so bland. It's so dull. It, it's, just, it's just awful. Gracious words can be interesting and lively and colorful and stimulating. Now let me give you an example that I, I picked up in uh, one of the books I was researching. At a prayer breakfast in the House of Commons... The speaker was approached by a very zealous Christian who said, grabbed them and said, uh, in fact, it was her, Betty Boothroyd, who is a Christian, said, when did you last meet with the Lord? Now, there are those of us who are Christians who say, what a courageous witness. But was it? Was it wise? Our words are to be courteous, not arrogant, interesting, not bland, thoughtful, not superficial. Doubtless that person thought that they were having a a good witness. The reply, incidentally, they got was, uh, every time I meet for, for prayer with other MPs. This morning, in fact. Sometimes we just don't see the other person. Sometimes it's just really about ourselves. There's a danger we can be superior, boring, and unable to listen. And boy, do some of us know that danger. We really need to be gracious, stimulating, and deep. And for that, we need prayer, acknowledging our own weakness, and love for those we speak to, and knowledge of God. See, our concern is to be the sowing, not the harvest. T.S. Eliot, in uh, Choruses from the Rock, says this, Take no thought of the harvest, but only of proper sowing. And if we are to have proper sowing, we need to know the rudiments of our faith. We need to answer everyone. And that's not saying that there's one answer for everyone, but that we need to treat and relate to everyone as an individual. We give them the appropriate words for them. As a Christian, you are not a computer program, you are not a Christian call center, and you are not the equivalent of a Tesco worker who has been handed a form beforehand in staff training saying, say this when you meet this person. The model for evangelism 
is not the commercial marketplace as though we are selling a product. And I want to take just a couple of minutes to explain what I mean by this. And I'm just going to use these analogies. If these don't work for you, then discuss it afterwards or tell me I was wrong. These are the models that don't work. One is what I call overgate evangelism. Where you're walking down the overgate and people jump at you from the stalls and try to sell you jewelry for your wife, a beauty product or a walking toy dog. This is what you need, sir. Sir, can I ask you, you know, right? It's people jump at you and they try to witness to you. I actually received a, 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 a piece of information saying, watch out for Christians on planes. Make sure you don't sit next to one because otherwise they're going to try and witness to you and hand you, you know, overgate evangelism. That's what I'm calling it. Tesco evangelism. That's where people want you to come in and to get their goods. Comes in two sizes, small and mega store, if you like. And often that's like the church. Come in and buy what we're selling. Woolworths evangelism. Pick and mix religion. That's a particular version of, of, of the shop evangelism. Where people say, come in, take a pick, choose, have this bit, have that bit. You like that bit? Good. Come on, join us. Bankrupt in more ways than one. What about home evangelism? What is sometimes called friendship evangelism. And in, in selling things, this is where people who invite you to their home... You know them vaguely, otherwise you wouldn't go. They may be close friends, they may be family, they may just be workmates, they may be people who are at a distance, but they invite you around to their house to a wine party where they're going to try and sell you wine or they're going to try and um, sell you Tupperware or whatever. I haven't heard of Tupperware parties for a long time. But there are people who treat evangelism like that. Come to my house and have a meal and I'm going to sell you Jesus. Or at least that's how it's perceived. Then there's what I'll call cared hole evangelism. Where you offer entertainment to people and then as a result of that entertainment you put in product placement where the product is Jesus. Then there's what I'll call Mars Bar Evangelism which is the equivalent as a, of, of I've heard someone doing this going out handing out a Mars Bar to people saying this is to show that Jesus loves you. Or at a more serious level it's where churches rightly actually engage in social work which we should be doing but then we boast about it. Because we say this is our reason for existence. This shows how lovely we are. This shows how important the church is. This is why you should belong. But then it becomes about us and about Christ. And incidentally, I'll, I'll throw this in just as a comment. But um, I did feel it was great at the DECA service last Sunday evening to see so many Christians together. And there were so many things that were positive about it. But I did feel actually that for an evangelical service, Christ was not as prominent as he should have been and was left out far too much. There was too much of this is what we are doing as the church. Look how wonderful we are. If we are doing social work, we don't need to blow our own trumpet. Let men see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, not other people. All those things, I don't think they work because you don't sell Jesus because Jesus is not a product. I want to suggest to you that, that this um, type of evangelism we're talking about is really wedding evangelism and in the end of revelation it says the spirit and the bride say come the bride is the church jesus says come but the bride is the church and the church says come and it's come and be married it's not selling something i think when you try and sell jesus in any form whatsoever you are engaging in spiritual prostitution i think it's just so completely wrong it's so antithetical to the gospel now let me put it this way, to those of you who are not Christians, imagine you're walking down the street and you're doing your Christmas shopping and someone comes up and invites you to a party. You say, oh, party, sounds okay. But then you're invited to a feast. Wow. You're invited to a wedding, actually. And you're invited to the meal. 
Wow, it's only family and close friends. Fantastic. At the poshest hotel in Dundee. Or let's go to Perth or St. Andrews or somewhere. And, and, or Edinburgh. <laughs> and, you, and you're thinking, wow, that's something else. But then you go and you discover that you're putting, like, I'm obviously assuming you're a woman, you put the dress on. You say, bridesmaid, oh, here we go again. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. But then the person who's inviting you is saying, actually, will you marry me? It's an extraordinary level of invitation. It's a marriage proposal to the king of kings. Come by without money and without cost. It costs you nothing because it's not for sale. But you give up everything for it. You see, that's what we're doing with Jesus Christ. We're not asking people to buy into something. We're not asking people to take a bit of it home. We're not asking people to earn anything. We're saying this is absolutely free. And it's not about joining us. It's about being married to Jesus Christ. Being, having an, a deep relationship to Jesus Christ. It's a responsive relational model. It's a countercultural model. It's where people come and ask you, what have you got? I want that. It's, I've used this before, but I'll use it again. It's what um, my parents, I'd call the Port Mahomet eggs model. They don't advertise their eggs. They have free-range eggs. People come, they hear about them, they taste the egg, and they go, wow, where'd you get that egg? Oh, we got it up at Rockfield Mills. People turn up at the door. You got any eggs for us? Because it's so good. People want it because it's so good. We are not selling something. We are a starving beggar who's found bread sharing what we have. The love of Christ compels us. It is relational. It is like um, Pete and Joanne uh, having their baby. They don't need to sell the fact that they've had a baby. They tell people. And we need to do that. We need to say the right word to the right person at the right time. And we need prayer and we need the spirit. Uh, I don't have time, but in Acts 6, 8 to 10, you see an example of that. Luke 21, 14 to 15. I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict, says Jesus. Yes, it works. Does it work? Of course it works. Not that we're always successful and we will experience opposition. But does it matter? I was in Glasgow this week and I gave a talk there and I'd love to say all my talks are tremendously popular and everything. Two people got up and walked out. One man with absolute hatred in his face. Just absolute hatred. All I was doing was talking about humanity and Jesus Christ. But do you know this? I don't care. I really don't care. If you're offended by the gospel, I don't care. Because I'm telling you about Jesus. And he's way, way, way more important than your personal feelings of offense or whatever. I'm not creating your own personal Jesus. I'm not letting you invent a pick and mix religion. It's Jesus. And he is the most wonderful person in the world to know. And you need to get to know him. And you can get mad at him now if you want. You can get mad at me. You can get mad at other people. But you still need to know that Jesus. Let me finish by just mentioning what we said in First Peter, or what Peter says about always be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. First Peter three, fifteen. See, the key to bearing testimony to Jesus Christ is this. It's in that first sentence. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. It's focused on Jesus Christ. That's what living in grace is. That's what witnessing is. 
It's because Jesus is in your heart. It's because Jesus, and not in that shallow, superficial way that's so spoken of. It's because you're burning with love for Jesus Christ. It's because you know Jesus Christ. And you cannot but communicate Jesus Christ as though you've just married the most wonderful man in the world. As though you've just had the most wonderful baby in the world. You know the most wonderful person in the world. And you are desperate to share that with everyone around you. And until you know Jesus like that, you will never bear adequate testimony to him the fruit of the righteous says Proverbs is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise we should always be praying for opportunities to present the gospel we should always pray that what we say will awaken an interest in Christ we should realize that the Christ whom we know and love is the Christ who reached out to save the world and so should we we need to get a grip of where we are at where the world is at who Christ is, and do our utmost to share him. It should break your heart that every single seat in this building is not filled with people, with your friends, with your family, with your workmates, with the people who are around, who are desperate and longing to know Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't break your heart, I've got to ask, where are you as a Christian? Are you a Christian? You follow the one who it so broke his heart that he died for us. Are you saying this is my Jesus just for me? It's not. It's Jesus for everybody. And this desperate need that we see. And last Sunday evening we heard about the social needs and all the different needs. And they are desperate and real needs. But you know the most desperate and real need that every single person has. Whether they're a junkie or whether they're a church going 8 year old woman. The same need. Desperate need. Is for Jesus Christ. And this is the really scary thing. In one sense. But also the most wonderful thing. Jesus says, it's yours. Go tell him. Go tell him. I want you to share. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's pray.